So I have a confession to make. I have never seen Clueless. As if it was one of the best, if not the best, teen movie of the 90s, and I was a massive fan. So I'm very excited that joining me today is Cher's nemesis Amber to reminisce about making the film and talk about her life after that thing she did. Please welcome Elisa Donovan. Hello, Elisa. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you. I was a massive Clueless fan, so I'm super excited to be talking to Amber herself. Uh. <laughs> but I think you all must have been drinking something magical while you were making the film because you all look like you've been suspended in time. It's like you, Paul Rudd, Donald Faison, <laughs> Stacey Dash. It's incredible. <laughs> what is the secret? <laughs> I don't know. I feel, I mean, first of all, thank you so much. But I, uh, I don't know, living like, happily or something, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I drink a lot of water. <laughs> um, good spirit, do some yoga. I don't know. Being happy, I would say. Joy is a good, is a good, uh, it's good for the skin. <laughs> well, whatever you're doing, bottle it and sell it. I'm sure you will make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get down to business and head straight into the nostalgia zone. Clueless reinvented smart teen movies for me, um, but I totally didn't realise when I first saw it that it was a modern retelling of Jane Austen's Emma until I read the book. I think it was about three years later. Mm. What was your reaction when you first read the script and did you immediately make the connection between the two? So I was a 19th century English novel major. That was one of my main focuses in college. So okay. along with acting uh, and writing. Um, so uh, I was very familiar right away. And I felt like, oh, my goodness, this is this is incredible that I could be actually like merging these parts of my life. You know, I'm the, when I auditioned for the movie, I was walking around reading David Copperfield. So I'm very much a, um, a, a reader and of that period of time. So I did know, yes. But I don't know if everybody else did, but I did. <laughs> so what was your impression of the um, the, rete the modern retelling of it then? I mean, Amy Heckerling is just a, a particular genius. You know, she's really able to take the heart of something, truly the heart. You know, people uh, kind of always ask, like, why do you think it's so popular? And why has it lasted so long? And Absolutely. It is because A.B. Heckerling is a brilliant director and writer. And one of the, the pieces of that with this film in particular is that she really is able to find the heart in something. And uh, I really think that's, that, that's the reason. There is something very pure and um, heart filled about it. So within the humor and the kind of like all of the other pieces and the bright, shiny colors and all of that stuff. It's really that it's incredibly smart and it has a, a big heart. That's what I think. You said before that some eighth grade meanies were the basis for Amber. But how <laughs> did your high school experience compare to the high school that we saw in the movie? I mean, it could not have been more different. In, in the eighth grade, I became what I would describe as a non-conformist punk rocker. So I <laughs> shaved half my head. I had like black 
little, I, I, I dyed my hair under here because my parents wouldn't let me do that. So I had to hide it from them. I just did like the under parts <laughs> and I had like, you know, ripped stockings and creepers. They were these shoes that were like combat, like thick soled shoes. So we were, I was like an artist and doing theater and painting and taking photographs. And we were, I suppose, as I'm saying all this, I'm saying, well, it probably was uh, in some way reflective of the, the, the movie because there were certainly different groups, mm. right? We just were, I guess we'd be considered the freaks probably. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> happily, happily, self-proclaimed. <laughs> so the film became a pop culture phenomenon and one big contributing factor was the language that was mm. used and how people then adopted it into their everyday speech in particular as if um and the phrase that you made famous whatever with your hands in the in the w yes at the time were you thinking you know like what are we saying i well the funny thing is i had a a, a boyfriend prior to the like from the age of 17 to 21 and we would break up we would fight all the time break up get back together and he used to say whatever all the time to me in this way that just infuriated me, right? It was like, I couldn't stand it when he said this. So when this became my, when I read the script and I went, oh, this is her word. I, I felt like, oh, this is kismet in some way. You know, I'm going to be able to use this word now to my advantage in a defining way. Uh, it just really made me laugh. But the other, all of the, the rest of the lexicon of terms I mean, it was just, again, so brilliant on Amy's part, her, all the research she did. And she's just really astute with not only being able to tap into what people at that age are going through and saying, she can then, you know, she just created the the language. It was pretty genius. Do people still stop you in the street and say it to you? <laughs> they do. <laughs> do they put their hands in the W as well? Sometimes, or sometimes they just, they like secretly are like, will you just do it for me? You know, like they just want to, I mean, it's funny. The fashion in the film was amazing. Um, and Alicia's yellow tartan skirt and jacket combo, or, or plaid as you call it in the US, is iconic now. But for Amber, yeah. your outfits and hair seemed to get more outrageous every time we saw her. <laughs> what was your reaction when you'd be shown <laughs> every day? Like, what am I wearing today? That was the gold. So Mona May, who designed the costumes, another genius at her craft, she would you know, everything was about what if, you know, Amber looked at every day as if she was on the runway and, you know, like the high fashion runway. And if so, anything she was doing, if she was like, oh, I'm kind of interested in the military today, it would be like from head to toe, what would you wear if you were in the military and be high fashion? So it was constantly a full body expression of whatever she wanted to do. And then coupled with the hair and makeup, it was truly as if, you know, we would say every time I came out of the trailer, like how much crazier can it get? Like how much bigger can it be where, you know, the, the uh, ADs would be like, oh, she's coming in. Like, just wait to see what she looks like today. You know, it was really fun in that way. It was kind of a, um, always a surprise and always a little bit of applause from the crew every time. <laughs> You've 
uh, written a book, which we're going to talk about in the second half of the show, but you mentioned that you were pretty unwell while you were filming the movie. Ah, uh, yes. And you had to go to hospital at the time. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I did. I was uh, suffering greatly from anorexia and I had been in, um, well, in denial about it. Um, <laughs> and in one of, I had uh, maybe, I feel like three or four days off in one week and I um, had to, I almost had a heart attack wow. and my friend Jennifer drove me to the emergency, what do you call it? The uh, It wasn't a hospital, it was a you know, like a, a 24 hour emergency care mm. place. And the doctor said to me, you know, he started to talk to me about, about eating disorders and all of these things. And I said, well, you're crazy because I felt like I was too fat to be anorexic and, uh, which is part of the, the malady. And, um, so at that moment I was so afraid that I was going to lose my job. I mean, I, I, my, my life was starting to take off in the way I wanted it to in my career. And I was concerned that this was now suddenly going to prevent me from that. So initially the only reason I started to really get help is because I was worried that I would, you know, not be able to continue. But then ultimately that isn't what, what helps you to recover. It has to come from a more pure place of wanting to be better. So, but I, it began in the middle of, of shooting that film. So, you know, I have a whole, uh, <laughs> it, it changed my life in a lot of ways, that movie, mm. but, uh, you know, it helped me to get healthy, mm. truly. Well, I'm glad to hear that you, you recovered and you, you've since helped others as well that have eating disorders yes. as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's been a very uh, key part of how I like to give back because it's a very specific, you know, having an eating disorder is really greatly understood by most people, by the general public. And it really is a, a mental and emotional disease. Uh, people just look at the body as if that's the, you know, the, the, the issue, but that's really, it's actually not much about that at all. So I really have tried to help as much as I can. I, I talk with predominantly young girls and women that struggle with this because a lot of people, um, they don't fully recover. So they, they wind up living in this kind of half life where they're still controlling food and they're obsessed with their bodies, but they're living. And to me, that's not a way to live. The whole reason that I got into recovery is because I wanted to have a real life again. I mm. wanted to be thriving and happy and have a full life. So that's why I really try to help people with this. And I talk to parents also who have kids who are struggling, um, you know, to offer them hope and experience. Yeah. It sounds like you're doing a, a really good job. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Going back to Clueless, we we have to, to mention Brittany Murphy, too, mm. who, of course, played Ty and had one of the harshest but brilliant lines in the movie when she says to Cher, you're a virgin who can't drive. Right. Um, <laughs> what, what are your memories of working with her? Oh, she was like, a, I always say she was like a little hummingbird. She just had so much energy and was always kind of fluttering and, um, and bright and uh, so vibrant. She just was really, really funny. And, you know, sadly it was really at just at the beginning of her 
of her career. You know, she could have had a very big, broad career. It was terribly sad. Terribly sad. Yeah, so sad. She's greatly missed. Um, After Clueless the film, you starred in Clueless the TV series. Uh, which ran for three seasons and almost all the cast appeared in in some form. Although I noticed that Amber's outrageous fashion was toned down a bit for TV. I don't know if that was budgetary constraints, (laughs) but... um... Oh, did you think so? (laughs) Some of it was so crazy that I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, some of it was, I'm sure, budgetary, but gosh, I felt like they were not toned down at all. But (laughs) sometimes I couldn't sit down. I remember a dress made out of CDs that it was like, well, you're just gonna have to stand for the whole day. Like, all right. <laughs> was the vibe different on the TV series compared to the film? Or it it was different for a multitude of reasons, but um we had a really, really fun time for the most part of it. You know, shooting a, a series is very different than shooting a film just in terms of what your day looks like and how much you have to accomplish in a day, how many pages you have to shoot, and uh, you know, and then ultimately you're playing that same character for you know, day after day and year after year. But then the other, the other side of that is that we, you know, you get to know each other really well. And, uh, I just loved like Don, I talk about Donald all the time. I loved he, we just used to laugh and have so much fun together, Donald Faison. And I, um, and everybody was terrific for the most part. And, uh, it was, it was great. But I think it was it was hard to make the 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 jump from it was on initially on Friday night part of this very young skewed audience and Clueless was kind of a bit of a tweener it was a made for a little bit of an older audience so they kind of had to they just had to shift a little bit of the tone and I think that was and Amy ran the first season of the show and I think she just didn't like the format it wasn't didn't resonate with her and I think she felt a little stifled by it this is I'm I'm I I think I mean she you know those are my words not hers but I think that was kind of it and then so she wound up leaving and turning the show over to Tim O'Donnell, who was great and more of a TV guy, you know, he had run other sitcoms and things. So he shifted the energy to be more like a sitcom as opposed to, you know, a a 22 minute film each week. And that was really the right. But by that time we had switched networks. And so there was kind of a lot of different things that um, changed, but we did have a lot of, a lot of fun doing Mm. it. And recently, of course, there was a, a Clueless musical and it was announced last summer that there's going to be a new TV series focusing on Dion's character. Yes. Given the enduring nature of the film some 25, 26 years later, do you think there could be a sequel maybe focusing on the kids of the original cast? Well, that's my understanding. That's what the TV show is about. It's about Dion's daughter. And, you know, I mean, I think it would be hilarious and super interesting. I don't know that Amy is interested in doing that, but I do think it would be hilarious to see what these people are doing. I mean, especially, of course, I think about Amber and like, what would she be doing as an adult and with children? And (laughs) it could be very fodder for a very entertaining uh, half hour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would just be great to see you all back again. Um, Okay, so it's time to leave the nostalgia zone now and head into what I like to call the lattered zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. (music) 
After Clueless, you went pretty much straight into Sabrina the Teenage Witch, playing Morgan for three seasons. Right. Another character not not entirely dissimilar to Amber. Um, right. Another great wardrobe. <laughs> yes. What was that show like to work on? That was really, really fun. I feel so fortunate that I kind of I got lucky to be a part of all these kind of pop culture phenomenons. Um, it was super fun. Melissa is like, you know, one of the nicest, most down to earth people you will ever meet. And, um, it was like, you know, working with your friends every day and, uh, we, it it was really fun and we came into it, you know, the show had been on the air for several years already. So it was very established and very popular. So, you know, when I came in, I think, I feel like it was the the season that I came on, they were in their hundredth episode. And I remember there was a big party and all. And, you know, for, for me and for Soleil, Moonfry, who came on at the same time too, we were both like, uh, it feels like five episodes to us, even though it's been a hundred, you know, uh, but they, so it was very much a well-oiled machine, but um one that they really welcomed us into. And it was really super fun. Do you think you ended up being typecast for a while because of Clueless? (laughs) Yes. You don't even have to finish that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, that's what happens. It's, it's just a, you know, at the time it was really uh, frustrating to me because I felt like, you know, the reason I was good at that hard is because I'm a good actress, not because I'm a a spoiled Beverly Hills girl who, you know, overdresses, (laughs) but you can't complain because it's also, you know, it was a, it was a big success. And so, uh, you kind of have to say, if that's the worst that comes, you know, from this, that's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. You've written a memoir, which covers a lot of your life immediately after Sabrina. Right. And it begins with you recounting this one day in 2003 when your life pretty much turned upside down. Right. So it's called Wake Me When You Leave. And it's ba- you know basically over the course of a very short period of time, uh, Sabrina was canceled. The relationship that I was in ended and my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And so I went from knowing exactly what my life looked like and was going to look like and where I was going and what I was doing to being completely stripped of everything that made my life make sense to me. And, uh, you know, it changed my life dramatically. So the book is, is about that year and how essentially I just had to lose kind of everything to get back on my feet and understand what matters to me, what I want in my life, what I truly, how I truly want to spend my time and grieving the loss of my father. Um, I have to say, I was, I was reading your book in bed uh, while my husband was asleep and I was just sobbing, um, quietly sobbing, but just tears were streaming down my face while I was reading it. Um, and I guess it's just that notion that everyone thinks that their parents are invincible Mm -hmm. and they're going to be around forever until they're not anymore. Um, I mean, it must've been hard at the time for you to deal with that situation, but how was it writing it down after yeah, I mean, I've always been a writer, so that's a way that I have used to express myself since, I mean, since I was six or seven. Uh, so it, it was kind of a natural thing to do, but 
I couldn't really write anything in the beginning uh, because I just felt so paralyzed. And writing is generally a very cathartic and enjoyable experience for me. And so I just couldn't find joy in anything. So I didn't write anything for quite some time. And then I started by writing every time I would try to start to write about the experience, I just kept coming back to my mother because I felt like if I feel so, so flattened by this and so just utterly out of sorts, how must she feel? You know, she, they had been married for almost 50 years and she never, uh, you know, they, that that's what she knew her parents and then marrying my father. And I thought, she has got to be so lost. Like, how can she? So I started to write kind of reflections of, of, of her and my experience of her. And then that's just how it all started to take shape. And my dad started to come to me in dreams and these kind of otherworldly experiences that were very disorienting to me initially. And then ultimately became real sources of healing for me and and Mm -hmm. um and being able to move forward I want to add that although I was sobbing (laughs) most of the time the book's also hugely uplifting oh um, good that's what I hope and your realization that sometimes you have to lose everything to to find your way back and your subsequent journey out of that dark place I think will inspire a lot of people if they're going through similar thing that's really what I hope that the book will do is I really do believe that it is ultimately a hopeful book and about how death is not an it's an end of sorts but it isn't it's also a beginning and we are able to we can remedy our relationships with our loved ones even after they're gone and um i i feel that you know it's a part of life and this is a a a, a spiritual experience and there is great value in being able to move through these things and acknowledge this type of grief and pain and that it can really enrich your life and 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 imbue your life with more more meaning and mm. and hope so I, I really do as much as it's about grief and some difficult things i also you know, think and hope that people find it really funny because there's also hilarious things that happen. And it's also really, really hopeful. Yeah. I was going to say that there are some very funny moments in the book, um, including a time when when one person asked you for an autograph at quite possibly the worst moment possible. (laughs) But honestly, I didn't even put all the times that that happened because it starts to become unbelievable. And then your people would say, well, that couldn't really have happened. But the amount of times that I have been asked like to take a picture or sign an autograph when I was weeping or like, it just, I mean, it's kind of an uncanny, uh, like, Oh, this is really, I wonder if this only happens to me. <laughs> you know, nobody asks what I'm like old made up and, you know, walking down the street in a happy state. Nope. It's always when you're in your pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of is um, you, you were at hospital mm-hmm. and it was on the day of your dad's funeral. Yes. I mean, it, you really can't make 
get up and I had scratched my, what it turned out was I had scratched my cornea. But of course I didn't know that. And we were driving, I was driving with my brother's boyfriend to the airport to pick up my best friend who was coming for the service. And I couldn't see, and I was in all this pain in my eye and I was wearing literally my pajamas and not expecting to get out of the car. And I was just in so much pain that we had to stop. We picked up my, my friend and then we went to this emergency medical center and they just started flushing out my eye, all this water and I'm laying on the bed and it's, it's just like, it's covering me with water and uh, the nurses come in and then I notice there's this crowd of people standing in the doorway and I was like, what is happening? Like, well, who are these people? And then the doctor comes in. I think he's a doctor, but doesn't say who he is. And he shines this black light on my eye and he tells me that I scratched my cornea. And I said, you know, this is incredibly painful. Is there, what can you do for the pain? And he said, you know, there's nothing we can do, but it, it should get better in a few days. And then I just said, I just started babbling. Like it's, this is the, this is the day of my dad's funeral. I can't function. Like I can't, I need, I need, I need help. I, I I'm in so much pain, like how am I going to do it? And I'm just rambling and rambling and rambling. And he just says, Oh my goodness. Like, I'm so sorry, but I, there's really nothing I can do. So they put this huge bandage over my eye that honestly, it looked like a softball over my eye with all this tape and, and, and I don't know what in gauze, and then this nurse comes over and I am like, what is she doing? And she's holding a magazine. It was an in-style magazine. And she says, I'm weeping, remember, right? And I have all this stuff on my eye. And I've just said out loud, it's the day of my father's funeral and like we have to go. And she <laughs> says, is this you? It was in North Carolina. She's like, is this you? Cause we were just standing over there and we said, this looks a lot like you. And she opens the magazine. She points to me standing on a red carpet at some movie premiere. And I was like this with the thing over my eye. And I'm like, yeah, that it is me. And she just says, well, can you sign it right here? Like just on the corner, be fine. And I said, what is happening? So I just, I, I signed the thing and then my friend Danielle who's there is like, all right, we're getting out of here. Like, this is it. Let's go. Like, let's ushers me out. So all of these people had gathered in the doorway, like everyone, the receptionist, the other nurses, the people in the waiting room, like they had all gathered by the doorway to ask this question if this was me in the magazine. And I just went, this is, the world is a very crazy place. <laughs> oh, I chuckled when I read that story. I thought, oh, only, you know, I, I, I hazard to, to, to guess what it's like for famous people anyway when they're approached for autographs, but just at the worst times it seemed to happen to you. <laughs> yeah, I just think that people, I mean, really at the worst times for me, but I also think that people don't, it's this disconnect, right, where oftentimes I think, there's a weird sense of uh, familiarity, especially if you're on TV as opposed to films where you're in people's living rooms. And but at the same time, they feel like you're not a real person, right? Because you're on this TV show. So it's hard for people to uh, remedy that actors are have real lives and real, yeah, you know, troubles and 
other things going on aside from being on their TV shows. <laughs> so yeah, so obviously the book is about your life and it was originally a play, but now it's going to be made into a film and you're going to direct it. But yes. who do you think you're going to cast as your mum? Because you describe her as such a brilliant uh, character. Yeah. Um, well, I guess just casting overall, right? You're, I imagine that's going to be difficult. Yes. You've got to cast people to, to be you and your dad and Yes. So we, that is what we are discussing right now. And I can't, we, um, once we secure the financing, we will be able to, to, uh, make offers to people, but we have several people attached already to, uh, play different roles, but the parents and the, um, the lead who essentially is uh, playing me, um, we have not yet attached, but we do have some very exciting people that we are hoping will come on board. So we should have that, hopefully have some great news to share later in the spring. I'll keep my eye out for it. <laughs> uh, before we leave, I just wanted to, to touch on some of your other work because um, you're in a series of ABC Family movies, The Dog Who Saved. And yes. They certainly haven't really made their way over to this side of the pond, but I did see The Dog Who Saved Summer on Amazon Video, which was like a nostalgia fest in itself because it had Dean Kane, <laughs> William Zabka yes. and Martin Coe from uh, Karate Kid. Obviously, they're in Cobra Kai now. Yes. Um, Patrick Muldoon from Starship yes. Troopers. And the whole film was a, a pastiche of of the karate kid anyway they just seem like yes. fun films to make oh they're so much fun they're these family films and we have uh, a, a talking dog whose name is zeus and um gary valentine plays my husband and the two of us like oh gosh i just adore working with him we've made seven of these movies and um it's always they're also kind of an homage to the home alone movies because dean and um Joey Diaz, they play this duo of their criminals and they're constantly robbing our house. <laughs> and so, and it's always around the holidays. So usually the dog is saving Christmas, uh, Christmas vacation, the holidays, like the dog saves a lot of different versions of Christmas, <laughs> um, but they're super fun. They're like silly, fun family movies and they're, they're great fun. I've loved them all. I know they always say, don't work with children or animals. Um, oh, I know. And I do both repeatedly. Are <laughs> <laughs> the dogs divas sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is what, oh my goodness, the one dog really doesn't, I would say he's difficult, doesn't really like his job, I would say. <laughs> uh, you know, Gary and I laugh so hard. We're like, is this a trained dog or is it just a dog? You know, like, can we just get him to sit down? It's very funny. We laugh. So they have, there are two different dogs that play one dog and, you know, the one is more lethargic. So if they have to do kind of scenes where the dog's just sitting there and not, you know, actually performing in some way, that's the dog they use. But then we laugh because we're like, the dog isn't even paying attention. You know, like the dog is like walking away, not interested in what we're saying. <laughs> it's very funny. It needs to be paid more in dog treats, maybe. Completely. Yeah. We're like, well, how, what does this dog need? It's such a diva. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like lighting the dog they're like okay we got to get that glimmer in the dog's eye you know the director of photography is going and i'm going what about the the glimmer in my eye can we light my face instead of the dog's face <laughs> <laughs> spending a lot of time on this dog <laughs> well he wouldn't be saving christmas if he didn't have that exactly. glimmer in his eye right <laughs> he does. that's right it's the glimmer that gives him the real gumption to save something 
Lisa, it's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, oh, it's, this has been super fun. Thank you. Best of luck with Wake Me when you leave. And I hope it helps a lot of people. Thank you so much. I, I, I really do too. And it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Massive thanks again to the lovely Elisa. Her memoir, Wake Me When You Leave, is out in the US on 8th of June and on 1st of July here in the UK, but you can pre-order it now. You can also find Elisa on Instagram and Twitter at Red Donovan. As ever, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please don't keep the podcast to yourself. It would really help me out if you could please share it with a friend or post a screenshot on social media and tag me so that others can discover and enjoy it too. And do hit that follow button so you can be notified when new episodes come out. And of course, you can also visit celebritycatchup.com for other ways to help out and also get in touch if you'd like to say hello. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Audie.